0: to 90.1 FM, KKFI, Kansas City Community Radio. Stay tuned for the Heartland Labor Forum, radio that talks back to the boss. the Heartland Labor Forum, a weekly show of news, information, and commentary by and for the working people of Kansas City. This show is produced by a team of volunteers from a broad range of workplaces and unions. The views expressed on the Heartland Labor Forum are ours and not necessarily those of KKFI or any unions involved. And welcome again to the Heartland Labor Forum. Tonight's show is being underwritten by Blake and Eulig and the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 124. Since 1972, Blake and Eulig has prided itself on providing comprehensive legal representation to labor organizations and their affiliated benefit funds on a local, regional, and national basis. And... The International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers, Local 124, supports the Heartland Labor Forum. We've been wiring Kansas City since 1905, and if you're not finding your electrical contractor at IBEW124.org, then you're not getting the best value for your money. The Heartland Labor Forum and KKFI thank our underwriters for their support. On tonight's show... In May 2022, the Heartland Labor Forum reported on censorship in public schools. This week, we're going to follow up with Kansas City, Missouri, school librarian, Rebecca Parker, about the escalation of book bans and the chilling effect it's having on our local school libraries. Then, the Economic Policy Institute just did a checkup on the post-COVID economic health of the Midwest, and they found it to be sickly especially in regard to minority unemployment, unionization rates, and lack of employer policies like sick leave. We're gonna get the report tonight on the show. In the news, American Postal Workers Union call for a ceasefire in Gaza, and Maximus call center workers want a union. Our feature at the end of the show is Remember Our Struggle with Ariana Blockman, and it's about Mexico's campesinos NAFTA and the Zapatista Rebellion. And now for the news. Now for the news from our side, November 9th, 2023. The American Postal Workers Union has become the largest union so far to come out for a ceasefire in Gaza. They announced that they are shocked and saddened by the tragic and ongoing violence in Israel and Palestine. As working people, we stand with the oppressed and the innocent, thousands of whom live have lost their lives in the last month. As a union, we uh, that stands for equality, social justice, human and labor rights, the interna- and international solidarity. We unite with unions and people of goodwill around the world in calls for justice and peace. We unreservedly condemn the Hamas violence of October 7th, which killed over 1,000 Israeli civilians and saw the kidnapping of more than 200 people. However, Israel's response has made the prospects for peace more remote. Over 10,000 innocent civilians, including 4,000 children, have been killed by the relentless and indiscriminate bombing campaign on Gaza. Israel has shut off the flow of food, water, fuel, and medical supplies to the Gaza Strip, a war crime. A humanitarian catastrophe is unfolding every day in Gaza. Thousands more innocent (coughs) civilians stand to die wholly preventable deaths. We call on our government, which is the primary foreign benefactor of the Israeli government, to use all its power to protect innocent lives and to help bring about peace in the region and not use our tax dollars for more war. We join the calls for an immediate ceasefire, the release of hostages, and urgently needed massive humanitarian aid to the people of Gaza. The cries of humanity demand nothing less. At the recent AFL-CIO Executive Council meeting, APWU President Mark Dimenstein, who was an anti-Zionist Jew, read a written statement similar to this, but none of the other union presidents present endorsed his position. Following President Biden, the vast majority of unions favor the Israeli side of this conflict and are not calling for a ceasefire of the bombardment of Gaza.
1: Mike Elk's payday uh, report is tracking censorship of journalists and their unions. A uh, response in the following story. As journalists face pressure not to present views sympathetic to Palestinians, unionized journalists around the U.S. are pushing back against their employers. Yesterday, Writers Guild's member called out Hearst Media for trying to enact a strict social media policy that would restrict journalists' speech on Palestinians. The policy re... Uh, Restricts writers' speech on their private social media channels, and the Guild's legal team is studying the policy. At the News Guild, which represents reporters at mainly daily papers and online members, are fearful of censorship. New York Times Magazine staff Jasmine Hughes resigns from the publication after facing pressure to sign a petition condemning Israel's attack on Gaza as genocide. In a newsroom-wide email to colleagues obtained by the Washington Post, Jeremy Barr Hughes urged journalists to use their union rights to protect themselves from censorship, saying, Unfortunately, my resignation process was under pressure. I largely denied Guild representation. As union members, there is a specific process that must be followed before major discipline action can occur. That did not occur. Don't view my resignation as reinforcing management's message that they can formally discipline employees without going through the process outlined in our contract. The Guild is there for the exact purpose to protect our rights and all interactions with management. Please make sure to communicate your experiences to the Guild reps so that they can help enforce the process and keep our rights safe. So far, the NewsGear leadership hasn't said anything about the forced dismissal of Hughes from the New York Times. Meanwhile, union dock workers in Belgium, Spain, and Australia are refusing to unload arms being shipped to Israel. Paul Keating, Maritime Union of Australia Sydney branch secretary, said, Our branch believes peace is union business and will always fight alongside those in our global community who are facing genocide, ethnic cleansing, and war crimes, no matter how many in our society choose to ignore it. We demand an urgent ceasefire and an end to all the decades-long siege and blockade of Gaza and a political solution for Palestinian justice. And in Canada... The national's largest public sector union, CUPE, the Canada, Canadian Union of Public Employers, Employees, has called for a ceasefire of Israel-Palestine. The largest private sector union, Unifor, has demanded demand a ceasefire in Gaza. Unifor's statement said, we are shocked to see Canada abstain on a vote calling for immediate durable and sustained humanitarian trace at the UN General Assembly on October 27th. An abstain on such a significant vote demonstrates to the world Canada's passive acceptance to ongoing attacks on civilians. This is totally unacceptable for a country that prides itself on being a human rights leader on the world stage.
0: And Maximus is a very large federal contractor based in Virginia. Today, hundreds of its workers went on strike for one day. These workers help Americans enroll in affordable health plans, but do not have access to quality, affordable health care of their own. A new analysis by the communications workers finds that workers at Maximus, Inc. have health plans that are both more expensive than comparable plans and expose them to higher out-of-pocket expenses with deductibles as high as $4,500 per year, 15% of a year's wages for the lowest paid Maximus workers. This means that the very workers that the federal government trusts to help millions of Americans enroll in Medicare and Affordable Care Act, Act, the ACA, plans do not have adequate access to affordable health care themselves. As part of its contract with the federal government, Maximus is reimbursing, is reimbursed for its fringe benefit costs. Today, workers are striking and demanding $25 an hour, affordable health care, and the right to organize. That's the news from our side. The news tonight was read by Charles Morty Mortensen, Michael Savoir, and I'm Judy Ansel. <laughs>
2: Some parents have a problem with books that are too rough Tackling things like race and gender or with characters who curse Our kids are far too precious to expose them to this stuff Though the music that they listen to is way, way worse Don't give a book on CRT to my sweet son or daughter or about any love but married heterosexual romance. We must shield kids from the sacrilegious spells in Harry Potter and that anti-authoritarian Captain Underpants. Ban 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 the books. Ban the books. Ban the books. Ban the books. Think of all the minds and hearts they are infecting. The books. Ban the books. Let's ban those books. Ban the books. Our fragile little angels need protecting.
3: Good evening. I'm your host, Christina Disney. Censorship and book banning is nothing new. The earliest recorded book ban in U.S. history was in 1637 in Massachusetts, where Thomas Morton's New English Canon, a critique on Puritan society, was banned. Over the years, Many books have been challenged or banned for various reasons. However, recently, there's been an unprecedented amount of books challenged or banned here in the U.S. In 2022, over 2,000 books were brought into question. According to the American Library Association, there is a record number of attempts to ban books in 22, which from the year before in 21, that's up by 38%. With us this evening is local librarian, Rebecca Markham Parker. We spoke with Rebecca back in May 22 when we had a show on censorship in public education. Today, we get Rebecca's insight on this concerning trend and its impact that's going to have on our libraries. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Thank
4: you for having me.
3: Well, first of all, uh, introduce yourself a little bit, your experience and education and your role as a librarian. Sure,
4: I am a Kansas City native. I have lived in the area my entire life. I have been a librarian in the Kansas City Public Schools. Now, this is my 26th year. I've spent uh, 24 years as an elementary and middle school librarian. And uh, last year and this year, I've been a high school librarian. Um, I'm very involved in the Missouri Association of School Librarians. They provide really excellent PD for members across the state. I've also helped provide that PD. I'm also very involved, and in, this year the president, of the Greater Kansas City Association of School Librarians. Libraries are a very important part of communities. We have specialized training that helps us to work with other people and to basically help people find information and reading that they are interested in. We are trained in many things, including the selection process for books. Ordering books is a really planned exercise for librarians. Nearly every public library and school library and district have Selection policies so that librarians are guided as far as what they buy. And selection policies include requiring so many professional reviews. They also include looking at the book as far as the community you serve and if it meets the needs of your community. It looks at the appropriate age level range of a book so that. If you teach in an elementary school, you're not ordering something that's rated for high school, for example. Librarians are really key to providing information for the community. We have to make sure that we have a really well-developed broad collection so that we meet our patrons and our students' needs. And the selection policy helps us to narrow so that we can purchase what's needed and appropriate for our libraries.
3: There's been this recent discussion of that there's somehow all these inappropriate books all throughout libraries and our schools. However, that's not necessarily the case.
4: Correct. Books. When you look at the ratings for books, you find from experts who they are appropriate for what age ranges, what types of students. And so there are already things in place that, take care of those possible concerns.
3: But it seems like as if with a lot of these uh, challenges for certain books that whatever people have labeled is inappropriate for whether it's middle school, uh, elementary or high school, that somehow that, that definition is quite broad that it includes uh, it's up to interpretation. It seems like, so you have a lot of legislators who are determining what's appropriate or what's inappropriate. However, the definition seems to be quite broad.
4: Well, and even look at the terms that a lot of legislators who are are, um, coming up with legislation about these items, you know, using words like lewd or inappropriate, they're um, very, they're full of judgment. And really, I think what we're wanting to make sure is that things are age level appropriate for our students. It's interesting, too, that a lot of books being banned are books that are about the LGBTQ plus experience, or books about minorities, stories about people from the Black community, the Asian community, the Native American community, and anything about gender. There are lots of issues people. Perceive with that too. But by eliminating those books, we eliminate the ability to learn from those experiences.
3: Exactly. And what I'm going to bring up is something that I know a lot of our listeners have experience with, but the Scholastic Book Fair, I know growing up, it was a big part of my life. I look forward to it. During the fall, during around parent teacher conferences, the book fair rolls out and you get to go through and you select your book. Yeah, I mean, of course you have to pay for the books, but it was something exciting to see as a child. And recently there's been a situation with Scholastic with their book fair. Uh, could you talk on their current situation and what impact, if any, will this have on book selection in schools?
4: Well, Scholastic Book Fairs faced a lot of criticism from librarians and others for isolating titles about race and gender, those LGBTQ plus stories, stories about minority characters and those types of things. So this year, schools were told that they could opt in or opt out of their collection called Share Every Story, Celebrate Every Voice. And this was their diversity collection. And they wanted to, as they put it, allow schools to decide whether they wanted the books. Um, There was a lot of controversy around that, and a lot of people really objected to this, because when you single something out and label it, violating possibly violating others' First Amendment rights, because of the huge controversy and the objections to doing this, this practice is going to be discontinued in January. So they have already backtracked on this decision. Scholastic published it as a way to support librarians, but it was not supporting of librarians and students at all.
3: And with the Scholastic Book Fair, parents are there, they send money to pay for specific books. So it's not like all the books are necessarily being handed out. It is through uh, parents do have voice in the selection that they're to a degree what Books or their children are selecting. So it seems like there's a variety. And if you don't want your child reading a specific book, then talk with the librarian about that or talk with your child about that. But it seems like you shouldn't be keeping other children and other families to be able to have access to these uh, wide range of diverse titles.
4: Exactly. In fact, libraries who are often the ones that sponsor these book fairs offer access and choice. And that is a parent's prerogative to know their student and what their student needs or what could be difficult for them. And so it's not the the librarian, the librarian offers access, the parent narrows that for the child. And that's an obligation between the parent and the child to make sure that the child is fulfilling um, any directives the parents have given them. You and I talked talked about the book, Are You There, God? It's Me, Margaret, just before we started the interview. And that's where I bought my copy of it. it was at a scholastic book fair. It gave me a lot of information about puberty that I needed that I didn't feel like I was getting from other places there's a lot of great things that happen at a book fair. Students who may not have a chance to purchase books to have to keep have that opportunity. Um, A lot of times book fairs coincide with a grant event so that students are able to pick books and, and keep them and they don't pay anything for them. So especially the idea that they were limiting what, students could have access to was really concerning because we all need books in our home and students would have a really limited selection if these books weren't included that were in the share every story, celebrate every voice
3: collection. Exactly. And with all this that's been happening and it's been gearing up, so I know at the, um, top of the show, I was talking about how there was a 38% increase in, um, attempted book bans or challenges in 2022. Uh, so from your perspective over the past 20, 30 years, do you think book bans have absolutely like increased, it's gotten worse, or do you think this is kind of history repeating itself?
4: I think it's history repeating itself. Um, it's really interesting because, um, Last year, book bans increased, went up another um, 60%. And we've seen this in cycles. There have been cycles of book banning in the 80s and other things like that. A lot of times what happens is there's a lot of misinformation and a lot of um, subjective language being used. You know, again, your words like lewd or inappropriate being used and so for fear is is stirred up in people and if they don't really look into the issues for themselves and they just buy the argument then that's when you have an increase in, in bands and fear about basically knowledge.
3: I grew up in an Italian rural town and books offer me access to learn about people all around the world who thought, looked, felt, worshiped very differently than I am. So it opens up the world for you. It lessens your fear about subjects that you may or may not know about. So that leads me to my next question. Why do you think there's such a push for censorship in schools and libraries right now?
4: I think that sometimes our legislators have a fear of knowledge, a fear of letting people think if we keep people ignorant about lives that are different than theirs, it's easier to stir up that possible fear. So a way to suppress information, and I see it as a way to suppress the learning of people in the community so they're not as knowledgeable and able or knowledgeable about doing their own research about issues.
3: Because when you have access to books, you're able to learn about things more in depth. I mean, that's, that's what libraries are there for. They're there to empower people. They're there to listen to different voices and perspectives. Now feel like there's this right now there's a lot of people it's easy pickings for people and it's not necessarily true and it's a kind of a rehashing of this the same talking points that yeah, as you mentioned they did in the 80s I remember a little bit of censorship in the early 2000s that you see this kind of rehashing and again and again it's like uh, same formula a little bit different talking points because it's an easy easy way to get people to fear or to uh, have misinformation as you said
4: and a lot of us live in small, smaller, more secular communities or may only know people of our socioeconomic group, our race, our religion. And like you mentioned earlier, books provide what we call um, windows, mirrors, and sliding glass doors. In books in your library, you should be able to see people who are similar to you. You should be able to see people who are quite different than you and you grow as a person and you're more knowledgeable when you step into those lives and you can feel other perspectives so that if you grow up in a small town, for example, you're not as sheltered, you're more open to the world. And I really think we have more of a global community now. We're preparing our students to really be successful when we make sure they have a good knowledge of the world and the multiple different types of people in it.
3: Exactly. And though people are pushing for these book bands saying that they're protecting children, that they're doing the best for what children want or need, books allow us to choose to develop our own voice and to create our own opinions about the world whether it's wh- whether we see the books reflect ourselves and our lived experiences or we get to have a window into someone else's life but unfortunately right now there's this pressure and people saying oh it's all about protecting children it's about sheltering kids saving the children however we're seeing voices silence that are nowhere near threatening or harmful to kids
4: absolutely absolutely so um, there are certain parent groups and communities that are pushing for these bans. Sometimes you even find when a school district digs deeper that the people wanting to speak up aren't even members of their community. And as you mentioned, you know, books bans are continuing to intensify. In 2023, uh, 2022, 2023 school year, Pin America, they have an excellent website that you can look at to find resources. They recorded over 3,300 book bannings, which was an increase from the previous year. This year, I imagine that that number will grow because there are a lot of districts that have bans that have multiple bans that weren't even listed that didn't have any in 2022, 2023.
3: And election season's coming up, and this is a talking point. It's an easy check-the-box talking point for a lot of politicians.
4: Oh, absolutely.
3: As we're wrapping up our interview, how can communities support their local libraries, whether it's their local public library or their public school library?
4: One thing they can do is be knowledgeable. Missouri has Senate Bill 775 that was passed a little over a year ago and the ACLU has filed a lawsuit and challenge of that so be aware of those types of things happening in this new law libraries can be charged librarians can be charged with a misdemeanor and they face possible jail time when they're t- really just trying to protect students first amendment rights and so they're looking to have the law rendered Judged as unconstitutional or unenforceable. Some things you can do in your community is attend board meetings and go on record as trusting librarian professional judgment. Um, as our Maslow past president, Melissa Corey, said, school librarians in Missouri serve as trained, certified experts when curating appropriate collections for our students and Senate Bill 775 and other restrictions have created a chilling effect on school library collection development. And that results in fewer representative books within our collections due to fear of prosecution. So just make sure that you're speaking up about that because censorship violates your First Amendment rights, which are your right to speak and the right to publish. And this has been interpreted as possibly government suppress attempting to suppress ideas and information and so that's in violation of your first amendment rights so make sure that you speak up in your library communities with your support
3: exactly that it leads to self-censorship whenever when librarians or even authors fear to get their voices out there it leads to, unfortunately, uh, not the good kind of, not discernment, that's one thing, but self-censorship.
4: It really does. Um, Senate Bill 775 that passed a little over a year ago dealt with images, and I think in the new um, legislative session, people have talked about looking at words, having that being uh, the big focus,
3: As a book lover and book reader and a public library advocate, I think that's absolutely outrageous.
4: It is. And it does make it really hard as a librarian to make those selections because we want to offer access and freedom to our readers so that they can have the experiences they need through
3: reading. Exactly. Well, our listeners, that was Rebecca Markham Parker talking about censorship and book banning in our public libraries and public schools. Rebecca, thank you for joining us.
5: Hey, I use mugs out there in Radio Land. You like noir? You know, gangsters, gumshoes, detectives, and such as that. Shots in the Night has them, sometimes, sometimes they're human, and sometimes they're not. Tune in to Shots in the Night on the second Thursday of each month on KKFI 90.1 FM, Kansas City Community Radio, to find out.
4: Community Voices is one way that KKFI seeks to highlight local individuals and organizations who are making a difference in their communities. If you have an organization or initiative that you would like to see highlighted on our airwaves, please go online to kkfi.org slash and submit information about your organization or initiative.
5: Closer to you, K-Line, and never a picky line You must never cross a picky line A line. must never cross a line.
6: This is Bill Bragg's Never Cross a Picket Line. Good evening. You are listening to the Heartland Labor Forum. I am your host, Zhongjing Li, and on tonight's show, we will be talking to analyst Nina Must from the Economic Policy Institute on a new report, "Economic Recovery in the Midwest: Challenges and Opportunities After the Pandemic," released last month. Welcome, Nina. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. So the report is quite comprehensive. Could you give us some introduction about why EPI has been publishing things about the Midwest and uh, the general ideas of the report?
7: Sure. So this report was sort of inspired by the fact that we have a lot of groups as part of our EARN network in working in the Midwest. And we were curious to see how the Midwest fared on this current economic recovery coming out of the pandemic, especially as compared to the recovery coming out of the Great Recession. Mm -hmm. And if we could draw any connections between those economic recoveries and some of the policy decisions made in the Midwest, both in the wake of the Great Recession and how they may be compared or contrasted with policy decisions coming out of the COVID-19 pandemic. And so in order to try to do that analysis, we looked at a variety of economic indicators around labor and and jobs, employment and the unemployment rate, our bread and butter indicators are related to employment, the share of um, workers that are currently employed, uh, as well as looking at indicators related to worker power, unionization and the social safety net, or whether that's benefits like unemployment insurance or benefits that workers receive as part of their jobs, like paid sick leave or paid family medical leave. Great. So
6: in terms of jobs and employment recovery, how different is the Midwest compared to the other regions in the U.S. coming out of the pandemic?
7: So I'll start off by saying that every region across the country recovered faster coming out of the pandemic as compared to the Great Recession, and that includes the Midwest overall. And within the Midwest, the region has fared better on some metrics as compared to the Great Recession, but it also has fared worse on others. And so to give an example, the Midwest has long had really low unemployment rates, the lowest of any region, and it currently is still the lowest of any region. Actually, it reached a historic low of 3.2% recently. So that has been an encouraging sign. At the same time, the Midwest is the only region that is still facing a jobs deficit relative to pre-pandemic employment trends. And on top of that, wages for the typical worker have grown slower in the Midwest than in other regions. Actually, some of these trends kind of predate the pandemic or predate even the Great Recession, you know, go back all the way to the Great Recession in some cases. And that's the case with wages, with wage growth, you know, median wages in the Midwest have actually been below average for the past 15 years. So this is a trend that sort of predates the pandemic, but they still have not caught up to other regions in terms of that indicator.
6: Does the Midwest experience some kind of even recovery across different sectors or industries? Maybe we can zoom in, you know, these disparities across different sectors.
7: Sure. so I mean the answer is no. There mm-hmm. While private sector employment overall has recovered to levels that actually exceed pre-pandemic levels, not all industries have recovered at the same rate. For example, so like in- industries like construction, trade transportation and utilities, uh, professional business services, those industries recovered pretty quickly while manufacturing was a little bit slower and education and health and leisure and hospitality have all been slower to recover. And then if we look at the public sector, the public sector employment is still facing pretty large deficits right behind leisure and hospitality, which obviously was hit really hard by the pandemic because these are high touch, high interaction jobs, low wage jobs, and those jobs have not recovered to their pre-pandemic levels yet. It's hard to know what's exactly driving these disparities because these are, you know, different industries with different compositions of employment. But we know that wages and working conditions amid the pandemic definitely played a role in the recoveries, the sort of disparate recovery we saw. For example, you know, the leisure and hospitality sector, which includes restaurants, is known for low wages, high rates of sexual harassment, lots of labor violations, it's a low road employer and it was also hit very hard during the pandemic. So a lot of these workers left the industry and employers have failed to bring those workers back to the industry because of the low wages that they are still still present in this industry. And so we think that 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 is certainly playing a role in the slow recovery um, of leisure and hospitality. And the same could actually be said for public sector workers, you know, these Mm -hmm. are teachers, bus drivers, firefighters, the people who process your unemployment insurance claim, Um, they perform these essential functions of our economy. But these jobs are so underpaid that there are lots of vacancies that still remain unfilled. And so we haven't seen employment return to pre-pandemic levels. And- On the public sector, I'll just say, you know, this is really an issue of racial and gender justice, because the public sector has historically been an important source of good quality jobs, particularly for women and workers of color. So when we see these deficits in public sector employment, it's disproportionately impacting um, women and workers of color.
6: That's kind of related to my next question, because as you mentioned, we are seeing very mixed signs for workers in terms of unemployment rates, as well as wage, safety net, etc. Could you expand a little bit on the racial and gender gaps?
7: Sure. As you say, it's kind of a mixed picture. So I'll start with unemployment. Like I said before, we are seeing historic lows in the unemployment rate, and workers of all races and ethnicities fared better during, in the wake of the um, COVID-19 pandemic. As compared Mm -hmm. with the Great Recessions, we saw much smaller increases in the unemployment rate. At the same time, we still have these racial and ethnic disparities in unemployment rates that, have, that predate the pandemic. For example, the Black unemployment rate is still two and a half times that of white workers. And it's actually worse for Asian American Pacific Islander and multiracial workers. The gap there is nearly three times the rate of the unemployment rate for white workers. So these disparities... Um, while maybe they were not worsened to the extent that they were in the Great Recession, we're still seeing um, gaps that need to be addressed in these, in these indicators. Another indicator that we look at is the, the prime age employment to population ratio. This is the share of workers ages 25 to 54 who are currently working. And we saw that the gap between white and black workers has actually narrowed over the pandemic period, which is an encouraging sign, but it's actually widened for American Indian and Alaska Native workers. So while we're seeing some encouraging signs, at the same time, we're seeing there's more work to be done. And in terms of the gender gap, it has not narrowed at all. So we still have that large gap in the share of prime age workers who are working based on their race, ethnicity, or gender.
6: I see, so the recovery process really shows we have a long way to go in terms of closing these gaps.
7: That's right. And that's why we make recommendations around bolstering the social safety net, investing Mm -hmm. in our care economy, and expanding workers' rights in order to help address these longstanding disparities. Even though we are coming out of the pandemic in in a stronger place as compared to the Great Recession, these disparities really predate this downturn and will take concerted investments to to close.
6: You just mentioned these kind of challenges the Midwest face in the economic recovery. Could you introduce something like the opportunities the Midwest probably have? And what role do you think labor unions and uh, lawmakers in the Midwest can possibly play in this process?
7: Yeah, I think the big challenge that the Midwest faces is resisting this urge to return to a period of austerity like the one that prevailed in the wake of the Great Recession, and, and instead using this on to opportunity to invest in workers and families, invest in the public sector, and repeal the anti-worker policies that have become so dominant across the Midwest and other regions. I think otherwise, the region has this potential to lose out on some of the progress it's made, you know, potentially to backslide on some of that progress, and also to miss out on opportunities to build a stronger and more equitable economy. I can give a concrete example of what I mean about backsliding on progress. For example, with poverty, the economic relief measures as part of the pandemic kept two and a half million Midwesterners out of poverty. But as those programs have ended, the supplemental poverty rate has actually increased by more than three percentage points over 2022. And so that's two million people who are now below the poverty level who weren't previously. And so I think it just goes to show that what's at stake when we say that the Midwest really needs to capitalize on and sustain these investments, because these are lives at stake when we're talking about the need to invest in these, in solutions that help workers and their families. As these federal investments, like government relief efforts, wind down, the Midwest really needs to take advantage of a lot of the recent legislation that has pumped historic levels of funding into the region and regions across the country so you know related to the pandemic that's the american rescue plan act that's the inflation reduction act the bipartisan infrastructure law these are historic levels of funding that can be used to really like bolster public systems and invest in good quality union jobs in infrastructure and manufacturing and clean energy but in the case of arpa midwestern states haven't spent a lot of this money, haven't spent billions of dollars that has been made available through this this law. And it will take a lot of sustained work and advocacy to make sure that the jobs that are created through all of the infrastructure legislation that was passed will be used to create these good quality union jobs and benefit communities. So I think the importance of un- of unions in that is to ensure that unions are at the table with discussions of the use of these funds, and that advocates and other community organizations are all part of this discussion about how to spend this historic money. And it's a historic time because it's an opportunity to really return to the high high quality union jobs that the Midwest had in the past. But we've really seen An erosion of union density in the midwest and an erosion in sort of the wage premiums and of the benefits that are afforded by a dense union membership in the region Mm -hmm. and so we really need to incorporate unions into the fold and making sure that the jobs created through all these federal investments are good quality jobs Mm -hmm. and you know these jobs in manufacturing that supported the region for decades during the 20th century were middle class, community sustaining jobs because they were unionized. And so a historical lesson, I think, is that this Midwestern economy that we think of as having high road jobs, as having good paying, family sustaining jobs, they only come with organized workers and policies that promote union organizing. And Mm -hmm. so in order to get to a place where we have these types of good quality jobs, we really need to invest in workers' ability to join and form unions and to repeal a lot of the anti-worker policies that were ushered in in the wake of the Great Recession. When we talk about this decline in median wages in the Midwest, Mm -hmm. I think it's important to to note that that has come amid pretty relentless attacks on workers in the Midwest over the same period, over the past 15 years. And this is through policies like the passage of so-called right-to-work laws, Limits on public sector collective bargaining and the preemption of local laws benefiting workers, particularly around uh, preemption of localities' ability to set minimum wages that are higher than the state minimum wage. As these attacks on workers have sort of eroded the Midwest's union density, that has in turn eroded the wage premium afforded by unions and had an impact on the ability of unions to. Advocate for higher wages and better benefits for their workers. So, I think it's really important to look at this decline in median wages alongside uh, the anti worker policies of the region and its impact on both workers' ability to negotiate for better pay and working conditions, but also its impact on the rise of inequality in the region. And, you know, we are seeing some encouraging signs. Michigan recently repealed its right-to-work law, which is a really big deal. And other states have also taken steps towards repealing anti-worker policies. For example, Minnesota banned non-compete clauses and captive audience meetings, and Illinois enshrined collective bargaining rights into the state's constitution. So some states are taking steps to repeal some of the anti-worker policies that have been implemented and to invest in workers' ability to organize but we need to see. We need to be seeing much more of this, and in in other states across the Midwest, in order to address the impacts of these anti-worker policies that were implemented in the wake of the Great Recession.
6: Great, thank you, Nia. Sure. We're talking to analyst Nina Must from the Economic Policy Institute on the report "Economic Recovery in the Midwest: Challenges and Opportunities After the Pandemic." Thanks for joining us, Nia. Thank you. We will end today's show by another song from Billy Bragg, There is Power in a Union.
8: Good evening and welcome to Remember Our Struggle. I'm Ariana Blockman, Journeyman Wireman of IBEW Local 124. Tonight we are going south of the border to examine the life and struggles of the indigenous people of Chiapas with their Zapatista movement and see how their story intertwines with United States history and labor history generally. The region of Chiapas in Mexico has long been a region characterized by periodic organized resistance to colonial and then Mexican government rule. It was in this context that on January 1, 1994, with the activation of the North American Free Trade Agreement, NAFTA, the Zapatista Army, EZLN, went public. Their declaration was one of armed separatism, and they had long felt not only unrepresented, but even persecuted by the Mexican government. When the Mexican Revolution had occurred a century before, land which had formerly been held by near gentry had instead been given to the peasants who lived there under a communal land ownership structure known as ejidos. The negotiation of NAFTA brought numerous changes, including the end of governmental support for the ejido system. At the same time, the passage of NAFTA and the elimination of Mexican agricultural subsidies drove food prices higher in the cities almost overnight, and drove many of the traditional ancestral indigenous agriculturalists to starvation and ruin, which resulted in huge numbers of people losing their ancestral homes and means of sustaining themselves. The Zapatistas reminded everyone in their declaration of this context of struggle and loss and stated that the sit-ins and marches they had already engaged in had went unheard and unheeded. With that, they declared war on the Mexican government. No literally, an estimated 3,000 armed insurgents seized six area towns and then retreated into the forests. What followed was a tense and sometimes violent period of years in which the Mexican army threatened the Zapatistas in the forest. But ultimately, a diplomatic solution was reached informally, if not formally, partly through the intercession of a sympathetic Catholic bishop who was based in one of the seized cities. The Zapatistas hoped to inspire a broader social movement for change in greater Mexico, the Intercontinental Encounter for Humanity and Against Neoliberalism. They called for a national and international shared platform uniting indigenous groups and all others opposed to the neoliberal globalist agenda. They issued further statements to the Mexican government demanding independence, political inclusion of local indigenous groups which had long been disenfranchised, for a right to control the exportation and exploitation of natural local resources, for the democratization of the Mexican government, for the return of the pre-existing ejido land ownership system, and other things. The Zapatistas themselves tend to resist political labels and categorization, but they are primarily composed of local indigenous groups, and are described by others to be leftist, libertarian socialist, anarchist, and to have roots in the libertarian theology movement. The Zapatistas prefer to keep themselves as horizontal, non-hierarchical, and leaderless as possible, but there are still some noticeable leaders, such as Subcomandante Marcos. In late 2006, the Zapatistas held another intercontinental indigenous encounter to which they invited indigenous people from throughout the Americas and the rest of the world to gather on October 11th through 14th, 2007 near Guiamas, Sonora. This specific date was chosen due to it being, quote, 515 years since the invasion of ancient indigenous territories and the onslaught of the war of conquest, spoils, and capitalist exploitation. One of the leaders of the Zapatistas, Comandante David, said in an interview, quote, the object of this meeting is to meet one another and to come to know one another's pain and sufferings. It is to share our experiences because each tribe is different. On December 21, 2010, the Zapatistas staged a tremendous silent public demonstration, including 40,000 people in five towns in Chiapas. The poet and journalist Herman Bellinghausen, who specialized in coverage of the movement, ended his description in this way. "'Able to appear suddenly, the rebellious indigenous disappeared as neatly and silently as they had arrived in the city at dawn that, two decades after the EZLN's traumatic uprising here on the new year of 1994, received them with care and curiosity, without any expression of rejection, under the arches of the mayor's office, which today suspended its activities,' Dozens of co gathered to photograph with cell phones and cameras the spectacular concentration of hooded people who filled the park like a game of Tetris, advancing between the planters with an order that seemed choreographed to get the platform installed quickly from early on, raise their fists and say quietly, here we are once again. Zapatista communities today continue to operate independently to build and maintain their own social, economic, and political infrastructure with a clearly stated emphasis on feminism and the inclusion of women. They also continue to build international ties with other indigenous communities engaged in struggle to protect their traditional ways of life around the world. I hope you have enjoyed learning about the unique, truly revolutionary Zapatista movement in Mexico and its efforts to protect indigenous and other marginalized communities throughout the Chiapas region. Have a great evening, everyone.
0: And now for the Heartland Labor Forum calendar, which is also on the Heartland Labor Forum Facebook page. Turkey giveaway, volunteers needed to help give away those turkeys. Saturday, uh, November 11th from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. This is at Macedonia Baptist Church at 1700 East Linwood uh, in Kansas City. And it's sponsored by the CBKC Community Builders. The UU Forum this week is on how area power utilities are stalling on climate change progress, with Ty Gorman from the Sierra Club. That's Sunday, 9.30 a.m. at All Souls UU Church, 4501 Walnut Street in Kansas City, or on YouTube. You have to go to the church's website in order to get the YouTube link. Starbucks Red Cup Rebellion is November 16th, And hopefully it'll take place here in Kansas City because it's taking place everywhere else in the United States. So if you go to Starbucks, show some support for the workers. Jobs with Justice fundraiser for the minimum wage and sick leave ballot measure is Thursday, November 16th, 5.30 to 7 p.m. at Homesteader Cafe, 100 West East, 7th Street, Kansas City, Missouri and a Steward's Workshop, workshop, workshop on assertive, assertive Grievance Handling, November 18th, 7 to 8.30 p.m. Register online at labornotes.org events. That's it for tonight's show. Tune in next week. We're going to have a show about the Teamsters for a Democratic Union Convention that took place last week, and we're calling it Poking the Corporate Bear. The Heartland, labor Forum, the Heartland Labor Forum is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Check out the rich diversity of programming related to workers and unions at laborradionetwork.org. That network now has over 200 radio shows and podcasts all about labor. Check it out. Thanks to tonight's engineer, Scott Stanton. And stay tuned for the Thursday night special, which is Shots in the Night Radio Theater. Listening to the Heartland Labor Forum, a show by and about workers, our workplaces, and our labor movement. We are radio that talks back to the boss. And you can talk back to us too. Send us your feedback, your workplace stories, news, and ideas for shows to Heartland Labor Forum KKFI at gmail.com. Our website, where we archive shows and post our upcoming ones, is heartlandlaborforum.org. The views expressed on this show are ours, and not necessarily those of KKFI or any of the unions involved. Tune in every Thursday evening at 6, or to our rebroadcast Friday mornings at 5, right here, 90.1 FM, We our cause we are the
4: working class place to be.